God, as we come to your word, I pray uh, that wouldn't just be a song that we sing, that our, our hearts would be open to hear from you, that you grant us through your spirit a humility that would allow us to respond in obedience to what we hear. Um, God, would you use your spirit in ways that I just simply can't conjure through preparation or personality or energy of my own? Would you use your spirit to teach your people? And God, I pray that we'd find your word sweet to us. And I pray that your word would be to us the authority in our life, not our experience, not our feelings, not our circumstances, but that we would stand on your word as our authority, as our guide, as that which instructs and trains and corrects and makes us complete. We look to you now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. You can grab your Bibles if you have them with you, and if you don't, you, you're welcome to grab one of the ones in the chairs. Uh, if you don't have a Bible of your own, please take one of those Bibles with you. We'd love for you to have God's Word for yourself. Uh, we'll be on page 455, I believe it is, in Psalm 73. Um, as a church, we make it our pattern to preach verse by verse through books of the Bible. We just got done with First Peter. We're going to take a few weeks and preach through some Psalms. We're going to have a topical series in the fall, and then we'll do Second Peter an Advent series that will be in James at the beginning of the year. So just to kind of give you a thumbnail sketch of where we'll be, and today we'll be in Psalm 73. So I have, um, I have a house full of daughters, we have six daughters, and years ago um, we had a Christmas where my oldest three were somewhere around maybe seven, five, and three years old. And, um, and we got American Girl dolls. It was like a big Christmas. Like we were... We'd saved up, we'd spent money to buy our oldest two full-size American Girl dolls. And our three-year-old, we bought the miniature American Girl dolls, these bitty twins. There's two of them, but they're smaller. So what happened, this is the way Christmas morning played out. Like, it's like the culminating moment. Like, the older two open their gifts. They're just elated. Like, there's shouts and screams, full-size American Girl dolls. We get to hope. Our third, she opens the two boxes of the Biddy Twins in my middle at that point. Ashlyn looks over. She's like, no fair, that two. <laughs> and so, so it is the heart of men and women who always look to greener pastures, right? Someone once said that the harvest is always plentiful in somebody else's field. Like the grass is always greener mentality. And one of the things we see in Psalm 73 is, is maybe you could put it this way, that the, the grass is always slippery on the other side of the fence. Because the more that we look on the other side of the fence for what our heart desires, the more slippery our footing gets in our faith and just in general in life. And so Psalm 73, and we're going to read through all of it eventually. Um, some of you may know the latter part of Psalm 73 where Asaph says, Whom have I in heaven but you? On this earth, there's nothing I desire but you. Wonderful declaration of faith and fullness and enjoying God and his promises. And the beginning of the psalm starts with this just beautiful, simple statement of truly God is good to his people. But what's interesting is like in between for almost half the psalm, Asaph unpacks this really deep conflict in his own heart. A, a relatively deep depiction of the doubt he has as he thinks about the fact that God is good, but yet sees something in life play out that seems to be antithetical or contradict the goodness of God, namely that the wicked seem to prosper in this life, that those who are righteous seem to have 
a difficult way. I'm sure all of us could probably relate in some way or another. Like we get to a place, we look, we survey when our eyes are horizontal, we look out on the world, we peer out over other fences and other pastures, and we seem to be left with this feeling of like, there's something a little bit amiss. Like I'm spending my life trying to serve and follow God, but yet my past seems harder than the person over here that's just shaking their fists willingly because they have no interest in following God. Like, what gives? And so that's really the heart of the, the messy middle of this psalm, and I would say depicts the human life in this little while we call life now in the midst of a sinful and broken world, that we just, we look around and things don't seem to make sense all the time. Everything doesn't seem to jive at first glance with the goodness of God. So why don't we go here and we'll read in Psalm 73 the first couple verses, and then we'll, we'll kind of read this in three different chunks. This is first, first of 11 psalms. It starts, there's five kind of books or volumes in the psalms. This is the beginning of book three. And this man named Asaph, who is kind of like a lead worshiper in the temple for the people of God, writes the next 11 psalms. And just a quick side note as well. This should encourage us. There's a peculiar encouragement from the fact that Asaph, a leader among the people of God, a lead worshiper in the sanctuary, unpacks his really deep doubt. But here's what's noteworthy about this. This is one of a collection of songs of praise for the people of God. So the Psalms represent a collection of songs for the people and expressing their praise to God. Isn't it interesting that one of the songs of praise would be filled with a description of the deep doubt of the leader among God's people? And the encouragement for me is that like even our, our moments of like greatest doubt can be turned into songs of praise. Isn't that, isn't that a sweet picture? Like even like our deepest discouragement, God can move to a place of deep worship, and that's captured in this singular song in Psalm 73. Let's read the first few verses. It says, A Psalm of Asaph. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me... My feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So Asaph starts with a, let's be clear about this, God has been nothing but good to his people, to Israel. And now by extension, through faith in Jesus Christ, to to the Israel of God, the people of God now in this age, the church, like we truly, God has been nothing but good to us. That's his sentiment that he starts this psalm with. So the goodness of God hangs like this banner over the whole psalm. And you can say over the whole Bible. Like you see in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down, green pastures, leads me beside still waters. And it culminates in the surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Truly, God has been good to his people. Psalm 145, it says that generations shall pour forth with eagerness the fame of God's abundant goodness. Truly, God has been good to his people. So, so Asaph, is almost like he sticks a pivot foot in the goodness of God. And he just says it outright, just no qualification. Like, truly, God has been good. Nothing but good to his people, but my feet almost slipped. I almost stumbled. Things got slippery for me. How? Because I started to envy the wicked. 
I started to lose sight of the, the goodness of God, and I, I stopped looking upward. I started looking horizontal, and things got slippery. My feet almost slipped. Because as sure as Asaph believed in and experienced the goodness of God, he saw some measure of a disconnect between the goodness of God and the prosperity of the wicked. And we can relate, right? We can relate to that struggle. You watch people who are indifferent to God have seemingly easy lives. We see men and women shake their fists at God, and those same rebellious fists seem to be filled with all sorts of material blessings in this life. And we're like, what gives? Like, this doesn't make any sense. And that's the heart of this struggle that Asaph reveals. Let's read verses 3 through 12. My steps had nearly slipped. The end of verse 2, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace, and violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness, and their hearts flow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people, the people of the wicked man, turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is their knowledge in the most high? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. So for Asaph, the summary was something like this. There's no pain in death. There's no trouble in life for the wicked. And that doesn't seem to be consistent with the goodness of God. Even in death, it seemed that the wicked didn't have any troubles. They weren't sick. They didn't struggle until their last breath. They just kind of quietly ended in their life in contrast to the many and even the righteous who struggle with sickness. They're fat and happy all their days. Comfort surrounds them the whole time they're here and they peacefully and quietly die. Verse 5 clearly depicts his struggle with comparison. The wicked don't have trouble like others have. The wicked don't experience the affliction and trials the rest of mankind go through. The assumption is kind of like this, like, man, what a life. I mean, I wish I had a life like that, right? Anybody, anybody relate to that? Sure we can. Even if we don't raise our hands, like sure we can relate to that. And this looks really good. I mean, this is appealing over here. This is where goodness seems to reside. Like maybe this is the path I should take. It's kind of the presumption, right? And the wicked aren't subtle either. They flaunt their wealth and their ease. It's one thing for a person to be rich. It's another thing for a person to want you to know that they're rich. We've met some of those people probably, I'm guessing. That's what the wicked are like. They just, they just kind of flaunt it about. They don't just quietly enjoy comfort. They want you to know how much comfort they possess. They wear it like a robe about them their whole Lives And Asaph's like, they're just rubbing it in everybody's face. They strut down the runway of life with pride and violence as their uniform, verses 6 through 8. Not quietly content, but obnoxious and arrogant. Their blessing is used to threaten and oppress other people even. Yet their blessing seems to continue. Verse 9, they set their mouths against the heavens. Their tongue struts through the wicked, strut and speak arrogantly through the earth, but even worse, their mouths lash out at the God of the universe. Still, their blessing seems to continue. 
Psalm 10, verses 3 and 4, says, For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. And the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. And other people in the world who don't follow God, they love this. They're lapping it up all day long. Like the wicked run in flocks and in droves. They have a team, a squad of those who don't follow God, just ready to kind of take in everything that they have to give. Verse 10, therefore his people, the wicked man, turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? The wicked man's people turn back to him. Eugene Peterson, his adaptation of this psalm, says it this way. It actually captures, I think, more of the meaning than what we see in this translation. He says, people actually listen to them. Can you believe it? Like thirsty puppies, they lap up their words. Those with their feet firmly planted in the world and pursuing their fill in this life will, in a sense, drink the Kool-Aid of culture gladly mimicking everything that the the wicked does, gladly following everything that the wicked says. They turn back, they see his counsel, and they see nothing wrong with it, and they just eat it to their fill. That's the picture in this psalm. They flippantly wave off any notion of awareness in heaven. God doesn't know. God doesn't care. And this leads Asaph to a place of seemingly just exasperation. He says, these, these are the wicked. Verse 12, behold, these, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. Can you feel like a sense of exasperation? My guess is some of us at least have probably felt that really in life. There they are. All these people that have no interest in following God, just look how easy it is for them. What do the wicked get for their arrogance and evil and rebellion against heaven? They get ease. They seem to swim in riches. They steady increase and abundance defines their life. In verse 13, look there with me, this moment, this verse 13 in Asaph is kind of the inevitable logic for us when we look merely horizontally at the things of this world. Because Asaph says what? He says, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long, I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. I have gained nothing by walking with God. That's an honest cry. It doesn't seem to me that I've gained anything in this life by following God. I've kept my heart clean and affliction has followed me all my days. I've kept my hands clean, yet every morning I wake up only to carry more difficulty in those same hands. Why am I busting my tail and depriving myself to please God? If ease and abundance and comfort and possessions abound for those who shake their fist at God, what am I doing all of this for? And if you've never felt yourself asking those questions, just wait. You will. This is the problem of the human heart. Because we are given to survey horizontally to our detriment. If all we do is look here, This world will give us vast amounts of fuel for our discouragement and doubt. It's only when we begin to look up that this comes into focus. That everything here 
comes into focus and we really see the true picture of what's happening here and what will happen there. And this is really the turning point in this psalm. In verse 15, Asaph kind of gives word to this. Hey, if I, if I said these words out loud, I would betray other generations. If I had spoken thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. These words that have spoken by him would mislead the generations of God people. But when I thought how to understand this, when I thought how to understand the goodness of God, the work of God, and the prosperity of the wicked, it was wearisome to me. It just left me bothered and burdened. And looking over the fence at the earthly harvest of the wicked will only produce weariness in the heart of God's people. Church family, if we try to evaluate the blessing and benefit of following God merely by looking in this world, every single time we'll be disappointed. It doesn't mean there's not blessing in this life and following God. Certainly there is. But it's not merely here. And it's not firstly here. But if we always look here, here being the world, we survey this little while that we exist here for evidence that it's worth it to follow God, you will always find yourself disappointed just like Asaph, and so will I. But this is the wonderful switch in this psalm. Verse 16, we're going to read this transition. There's just a blessed movement that happens at this point. But verse 16, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. And then I discerned, I understood their end, the, the wicked in this world. I understood their end. Verse 18, truly you set them in slippery places. Interesting wording. My feet almost slipped as I looked at what looked like the stability of the world, but when I actually came into your presence, what I saw is the very things that looked like security in this life were slippery places. Truly, God, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they're destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terror. is like a dream when one awakes, O oh Lord. When you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms, mere illusions. And when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, and all my struggle, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who's unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near to God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Now, there's several sermons in here. I don't have the time to unpack all this. But if you can picture for yourself Asaph, a leader of the worshipers of God going into the sanctuary. The sanctuary at this point is like the temple. It's different than what we picture here. There's some similarities, some commonality. But if you can picture just for a second, when Asaph steps into the sanctuary, he's immediately confronted with the presence of God. Because in this common area, when he walks in, the centerpiece of worship is the, the most holy place where the presence of God resides. 
And everything around it, everything he's been taught, tells him he can't go in there because God is high and holy. But circled about that most holy place is all this activity. The people of God making sacrifices to God and for God. You're the word of God proclaimed in the sanctuary. It's only when he goes in there that everything becomes clear. He's in the presence of God with the people of God, devoted to the things of God. It's no wonder it brings a sense of clarity. What? Because he's not looking here. His eyes have been tilted up to look at the one who made everything here and under whose feet everything on this earth is firmly planted. He says, up until I went into the sanctuary of God, I was confused, but my confusion gave way to clarity when I stepped in to the presence of God. Now I see that the path I saw is firm, is only leading them to fall to ruin. Ruin, not riches, will be the inheritance of the wicked. After they're shaking their fists at the heavens and running hard after the things of this earth, destruction will be their inheritance. This picture of a phantom, like one day the wicked will awake to the, to the reality that all of the earthly comfort and ease and excess was like a mere illusion because it will give way to the true reality, the eternal reality of God himself. Like waking up from a good dream to a disappointing reality and gaining a heavenly eternal perspective, Asaph not only sees the world and its predicament, but he sees his own struggle in light of what it really is. He's like, hey, when I thought these things, I was foolish. What the, like, what was I thinking? I was just dumb. I think that somehow my blessing being a child of God is bound up in the things of this world. Like that was, God, I was like a, an ox before you and no sense, made no sense at all to be thinking such things. Man, that was dumb, right? And it is ignorance to envy and illusion, isn't it? If everything in this world and all this comfort is a momentary illusion, like a phantom that will fade away in a moment, when eternity hits, isn't it ignorance to envy and illusion? And if I can just say this real practically, in a social media age, this is hard. If I could speak particularly to you young women in this room, social media and all of its forms and places cultivates comparison and not connection the very thing this psalm unpacks in so many other places in Scripture, and this is true for adults as well. I think it preys uniquely on young women. You know, it cultivates comparison, not community, not connection. I'm not going to tell you you need to get rid of social media in general, but you do need to be aware of its struggle. I joke with Haley, like Pinterest for me. So my, my sub name for Pinterest is a National Center for Discontentment. That's just what Pinterest is. Like, everybody looks at it like, hey, I need a monogrammed washer and dryer. That'd be awesome. Like, <laughs> I need my name on my boxers. That'd be great. You know, you're like, no, you don't. You don't, you don't need that. But it is like the, but that's what it does. Like, that's what social media thrives upon is comparison. It doesn't, it connects you in some way, I guess. But it fuels the very thing that we already struggle with mightily, comparison. That the harvest is more plentiful in somebody else's field. That there's actually joy to be found by chasing after those things than trusting in the goodness of God and his provision for us. I've struggled in this recently. 
Just as like we're in an expensive season of life. And there can be times where I'm just like, Lord, this should be easier. Should be, right? I look around. It does seem like people have no interest in following you. They do thrive. Why are things so tight? Practically, this hit home for me. It is a struggle. Until I lift my eyes up, tilt them up, and realize that this life is just a vapor. This little while is such a little while. So am I really going to amass all the comfort I can in this life to somehow just enjoy this little while, or am I going to invest my life, my things, my time, and things of eternity that will outlast my life here. And what a, what a sweet encouragement is verse 23. Did you catch that? Like the verse 23? You know, Asaph is like, I was just an idiot. I'm sorry, Lord. Like all this stuff I was thinking about, it was just stupid. I was like an ox before you. But nevertheless, like what a sweet but God. Like in all my bitterness, my nearsighted lack of joy and contentment, even in that struggle, nevertheless, what? I am continually with you. How can this be? You hold my right hand. Even in my moments of darkness, darkest struggle and discontentment, the, the hand of Almighty God holds me as his child. Lord, you've always been there the whole time, even in the depth of my struggle. You have laid your hand a hold of me as your child, and you'll never let go. Praise be to God. Somebody give me an amen. And this is encouragement to people who struggle with chasing the things of the world, even after the miracle of saving faith. Nevertheless, God is with us. God, I swerved away from you, but you never let go of me. Your right hand holds me. In the midst of my envy, my doubts, my nearsighted bitterness, your word guides me. And one day I'll wake up from this brief life into eternity. Church family, I need to, for the sake of time, kind of close off with a couple encouragements and thoughts. That no man, no woman of God can rightly understand the work of God on this earth unless he or she lifts his gaze to heaven. So where are you looking? Where are you looking for security and for joy in this life? Are you looking merely horizontally? Are you gazing upward to the one who gives you his goodness and gives you perspective, even in the face of things that are confusing into this world? And there is a practical encouragement. It's like, where are you going? Like, you need to get into the sanctuary. Be with the people of God. Be in the presence of God. Be busy about the things of God. Even just coming to church in the morning. This isn't just about going through the motions, singing some songs, hearing a sermon, then leaving. There's benefit in being with the people of God. When you can't sing, other people sing for you and over you. When you see someone give what little they have and financially give, it encourages you, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I need to be reminded that everything I have isn't just mine. We see people giving of their time to serve you up here. You see this picture of like, oh, okay, these people are living not just for their own benefit, but to benefit other people. There's all sorts of things that happen when we come into the sanctuary of God, isn't there? There's just deep encouragement being here. All of us have probably had the experience of coming in, like just reluctantly coming to church. But we come in and there's something that God does through his word, through his spirit, through his people that moves us to a place like, oh, yeah, that's right. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. And then I saw the real picture of what happens in this world. That it's just a vapor. All its worldliness is just an illusion of security. 
My security is found in my God, the one who has laid a hold of me by his goodness. So where are you going? Are you getting into the sanctuary? Whose counsel is guiding you? Culture will eagerly volunteer itself as your counselor to give you input as to what you should chase. Anybody ever had one of those like classmates that's just like the one who's always raising her hand for, and they don't even know everything. They're just constantly raising their hand to answer questions. Nobody had one of those people. Culture's like that annoying classmate. It's like, hey, I'll give you some counsel. The moment you take your, your eyes off the, the word of God, stop being with the people of God, you know who's sitting in the corner raising their hand for you to listen to them? Culture. Listen to me. Chase after me. I don't have the answer. I'm going to pretend like I do. Constantly. But whose counsel is guiding you? Where are you going? Whose counsel is guiding you? And where are you looking for your inheritance? When we look upward, we see God's goodness isn't measured by what we achieve, receive, or possess on this earth. When we look upward, everything below heaven becomes muted in the background. That's why Paul says in Colossians, if then you have been raised with Christ, if you are a believer in Jesus, raised the newness of life in him, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above. Seek them, set your mind on them, not on the things that are on earth, for you have died. Church family, listen to this. And your life is hidden with Christ and God. Isn't that interesting? There's a measure of our life here, all the benefit thereof that's hidden in this life, from this life, and it's hidden with Christ in God. We don't fully see now the true and final and full benefit of knowing and following Jesus. But what we know in part now, if you're in Christ, there will be a day where you will know in full. And everything you know in part will give way to this, the, the wonderful, abundant riches of knowing Christ Jesus as your Lord and as your treasure. And even though our physical frame, our heart and our flesh finally gives way, that God will forever and ever be the strength of our heart and our inheritance in the end. That word portion is the picture of like, in the end, God is what I get. Is that enough for you? Does that appeal to you? If everything melts away, everything not eternal in this life will melt away, and at the end, if you get God, does that right now appeal to you? And I would submit to the extent it doesn't appeal to us right now, there's something amiss in our view of eternal things versus earthly things. And it will be a battle in this life. But can we look in God's word and be shaped by its promises and its exhortations that God, whom have I in heaven but you? On this earth, there's nothing I desire but you. Even though my physical frame might melt and waste away, God, you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And in closing, would we say as well, but for me, it is good to be near to God. I've made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. I'll just say this plainly as I finish off. If you're in this room, a room of this size, it's likely there's someone in this room that you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian. Maybe you don't even know where you stand with God. And this statement at the end of the psalm gives at least the opportunity to say, what does it take to be near to God? Is it just that you just kind of tighten your boots a little bit tighter and you just run harder in this life? Now at the end, just hope that your good outweighs your bad. No, the picture in the Bible, the good news of the gospel means good news. The good news is this. You can't be near to God on your own effort. In fact, you're far from him. The Bible depicts us as aliens and strangers to the family of God apart from Jesus Christ. 
You can only be near to God, part of his family, through faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's only by grace through faith in Christ alone that you can be near to God. But you get to be near to God through Jesus. By his grace and mercy, by his favor, he allows salvation and forgiveness to be given to people so that we can be near to him eternally and near to him even now in this messy middle that we call life. So that all of us, like in this life, and I pray just increasingly so, that all of us, like our hands would loosen just a little bit from the world this morning. That we push from here to up here to lay a hold of the promises of God, to love him more, to love the world less, that we truly find him to be everything we want, everything we need. If we had everything in this world but didn't have Christ, we would have nothing. But if we have nothing in this world and we have Christ, we have everything. Jesus, help us believe that. As we sang that song earlier, that, that you are better than the best things in this life. You are better than the solution to the worst things in this life. Help us believe. Help us believe these things are true. That even if our physical frame would waste away, even if our heart and our flesh would fail, would would we find you to be the strength of our heart and our portion forever? And I pray for your people, for us as your children, that we'd find our hands this very day loosened from the things of this world, lifted from horizontal comparison to vertical worship as we see you as the one who is worthy of our, our lives, worthy of our affection, worthy of our praise. Increase our love for you, I pray, that the world would see that nothing matches the grace of God, that nothing is worth more than the, the Son of God. There's no other name given among men from heaven by which we can be saved. So Jesus, we, we thank you for your work. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for forgiveness, for forgiveness in your name. It's not found in us. It's not found in our effort. We thank you for the riches of your wonderful grace, and we sing in response. In Jesus' name, let's go ahead and stand together. We'll sing.